HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures. ...and spice markets, pilafs and kebabs. We're talking turkey today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, you are listening to A Taste of the Past here on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And indeed, today we're talking turkey, Turkish cuisine, that is, sometimes called fusion, Turkish fusion cuisine. And it's little wonder, um, looking at Turkey's geographical location, kind of straddling both uh, Arab and European countries and traditions. And for more than six centuries, the Ottoman Empire controlled that vast stretch of land surrounding the Mediterranean basin. With Constantinople, back then known today as Istanbul as its capital, it was the center of interactions between Eastern and Western worlds. Turkish cuisine is a colorful mosaic, enriched by the recipes and traditions of so many ancient cultures. And with us here today is the author, along with Noor Ilkin, of a cookbook on Turkish cuisine called Turkish Cooking, Regional Recipes and Stories. And her name is Sheila Kaufman, and Sheila joins us today from the Washington, D.C. area. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you so much, Linda. Uh, Tell me a little bit, first of all, tell me how you got involved with Turkish cuisine. You must have, it must have been wonderful to learn and travel while you were writing this book. Tell me a little bit about that and about Noor. Well, I really got interested in Turkey first because as a child and a teenager, I loved ancient histories and, of course, reading about Troy and the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I um, joined these two diplomatic organizations based here in Washington about 15 years ago, I met Nur, who was the wife of the Turkish ambassador, and she invited us to a big luncheon at her house and served us 23 different Turkish recipes. And I thought I had died. And 23 just, just 23. for lunch? <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I was a piggy at this luncheon. Um, I couldn't get enough of the chicken dishes and the sweets and the eggplants. And I, I loved everything. And I had just finished writing a book called Spartak Israeli Cuisine. And I called my publisher and said, um, 
would you be interested in a Turkish cookbook? And they said yes. So I, I told Nur that we had to write a book because his recipes were, were fabulous. And uh, she said, I don't know how to write a cookbook. And I said, I don't know how to cook Turkish. So <laughs> that was a, a match made in heaven. <laughs> we sat down right. And even while we were doing this first book, which was based on the recipes her grandmother had taught her from Gaziantep in Anatolia, she kept talking about someday she wanted to write a cookbook on all seven regions of Turkey. And when her husband uh, became ambassador to the U.N. and she moved to New York, we started on uh, this book, which took us about three years because at some point she was back in Ankara. So the Turkish cookbook, Regional Recipes and Stories, is this work that she always wanted to do on the seven regions of Turkey. And, of course, I learned more Turkish cooking. I did get to travel to Turkey where on one occasion uh, it was a food and wine festival and I literally ate from morning to night and (laughs) wanted more recipes from the regions and then I did a three-week stint in Turkey where I traveled to Troy and finally got to stand on the walls of Troy but learned about regional cooking firsthand and that was really how I got into this. And, and I just wanted to correct the title. I, I misread the title when I was introducing you, and you just corrected it. It's The Turkish Cookbook, The Turkish Cookbook, Regional Recipes and Stories. And I think we have a, we will have a, uh, a picture of that book up on our website when the, uh, the show is archived. And Sheila, I mean, now you, you're the author of over 20 different cookbooks. So um, do you always embark on something totally unknown, or was this a first? I like the unknown. I become passionate about something, and then, of course, um, I love history, so I begin all the research about the history of a food or a country or a culture, and, and then I want to try things. Years and years ago, in the 1970s, I began traveling around the country teaching cooking, and whenever I'd go to a different state or a different city, I'd like to go to the supermarkets. Mm-hmm. And so when I was in Texas, I began to see all these little tortilla things and masas and um, equipment for making them. And I became fascinated with Mexican cooking and decided that that was going to become a trend. And so I researched and wrote a little Mexican cookbook. So delving into Turkish cooking anew was nothing anew for you, nothing new for you. It, it was a grand adventure, and it That's still great. is a grand adventure. Well, um, since you said you always delve into the history first, uh, there are thousands of years of history uh, surrounding Turkey and the Ottoman Empire eventually as it became. Uh, give us, as far as the cuisine is concerned, give us kind of the 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 History 101 of Turkish Cuisine. Okay, well, Turkish cuisine was influenced in biblical times by the Hittites, and then came the Romans, the Byzantines, the Arabs, the Mongols and Chinese, the Crusaders, the Persians. All coming in to settle this land, right, or 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 state claim to it. The Persians or the um, Turks under the Ottomans conquered Mm -hmm. these lands. And the Turks were culinary plunderers. Wherever they conquered... They went looking for the best ingredients and the best recipes, which they would send back to Top Copy Palace. And they would things would be incorporated. Like from the Persians, they learned the art of mixing meat and vegetables or meat with fruits to make stews. From the Mongols, in the 1400s, they learned to make monti, which are little tiny raviolis or tortellinis. Mm-hmm. From the Greeks, they learned to make uh, round breads instead of flat breads. So... 
they would absorb things as they moved as tribes from being, you know, nomads to, to settling. They would take the best of what they found and incorporate it into their cooking. So it, this is this is indeed why and you've often referred to in some of your articles and in the book as Turkish fusion cuisine, right? Yes, and everything in Turkish cooking is fresh, regional, and seasonal. Um, some cuisines have a basic element, like if I said French to you, you'd think sauce, or if I said Italian, you would think pasta. But if I said Turkish, you wouldn't know what to think. Hmm. Um, there is no dominant element, and interestingly enough, the Turks really revere vegetables, so much so that many times vegetable dishes are served as main courses with a salad and, and bread. Hmm. Well, you're right about that being no, there being no single dominant feature, because as I'm reading through, I'm thinking, well, now, how, how do I introduce this? So I'll say, okay, pilafs and kebabs and spices. Well, then I'm thinking, but that's Moroccan. That's, that's, that's exactly. Arab cooking. That's, um, and think of any other dishes, and I can go to some other. Well, you've just explained it all by the fact that they were conquerors and, as you said, culinary plunderers. I love if, that term. If I don't bore you... <laughs> I'll tell you some of the modern names of the countries that the Ottomans controlled from the end of the 1300s till the early 1900s. Okay. Okay, in Europe, Albania, Bosnia, uh, Greece, Hungary, Slovenia, Macedonia, um, Transylvania, Serbia, in Asia, places such as Persia, Georgia, Iraq, Kuwait, Jordan, Lebanon, Oman, Palestine, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Yemen. And in Africa, Algeria, Egypt, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Nubia, Tunisia. So they went from more or less Egypt up to um, the Ukraine and over to the gates of Vienna. Wow. I mean, that's... And that was for 500 years, so they had a lot of shopping to do. And, and the Ottoman Empire really stayed more or less in power in different one form or another until not that long, like the 20s, 1920s, right? It became 1923. 1923 yes. So from the, yeah. from 13, the end of the 1300s till 1923, you have almost over 500 years. And it was under, um, like, Mehmet II and Suleiman the Magnificent that mm-hmm. they, they took the art of cooking to uh, these extravagant, extravagant heights. I mean... Um, the a Venetian ambassador wrote home during this period that he went to a banquet at Top Copy Palace with 123 courses. Hmm. And the kitchen staff in the 1700s had 1,370 people, and each one was in charge of a different specialty, and mm-hmm. each had a different skill. Hmm. And, I mean, the amount of foods, they baked 250 tons of bread daily in Constantinople. That's amazing. Well, that, and that's uh, it's why I mentioned in the beginning sultans, because when you think of Turkey, well, one thinks of Turkish cuisine, at least historical Turkish cuisine. You think of, of exactly as you described, the sultan's banquets and, you know, the, the beautiful palaces. And that's, that was a that indeed was was true. And um, you mentioned all the bread. I was thinking now now there are seven distinct regions, one of them being known as the bread basket um, for providing all the food. Can you talk a little bit about some of those regions and what they provide? Well, it's interesting because you, you have all this water for some of them. Um, for instance, um, 
Marmara with a lot of fishing villages and an ancient civilization. Now that's and in the west. It's also home to Istanbul. And yeah. interestingly, the lamb kebabs in Istanbul taste different than any other region because the animals there are pasture fed. And uh, chestnuts are very popular in the cooking in, in Marmara. And in the Aegean, they have more seafood than lamb. And a bounty of vegetables and figs and olive oil. Um, the Black Sea is anchovies. They love anchovies so much they even make a dessert with anchovies in it. And 70% of the world's hazelnuts come from Turkey, and most of them grow in that region. And then in the Mediterranean, they have banana plantations. There are banana and tea plantations in Turkey. And in the Mediterranean, you have oranges and pomegranates and strawberries and sour cherries and apricots. Mm. And in Anatolia, where they love to stuff vegetables and leaves, they're, they're high up in the mountains. And, in fact, when I talked to Nura last week, it was, it was snowing there. And so they do a lot of drying of their summer vegetables, like eggplants and okra and peppers. And they'll dry them out and string them and hang them. And then in the winter, they'll reconstitute them and stuff them with rice or bulgur or a mixture of meat with any one of those things. And um, they also stuff leaves, like grape leaves and cabbage leaves. And they keep a lot of dried fruits and a lot of grains, a lot of grains, fava beans and chickpeas and um, lentils are used to survive those long winters. Mm -hmm. And in southeastern Anatolia, which is known for its baklava, um, pistachio nuts grow. So you have so, such a diversity. And, and and, amazingly so, yeah. Yeah, and what you eat in one region you might never see in another region, or each village might make it different. In fact, um, when you go in a Lebanese um, restaurant or a Greek restaurant, you'll find a number of dishes like Eman Bialdi, the stuffed eggplant that's most popular uh, in Turkey. In fact, any chef worth his salt has to be able to make eggplant in at least 40 different ways. 40 different ways. That's if you're really good. <laughs> 50. <laughs> but they, they really, the eggplant is the queen of vegetables. Mm -hmm. And I told you, they really revere uh, vegetables, and they embellish them like, like nobody else. Oh, that's, uh, and, and, and you're, I must say the cookbook is filled with lots of those wonderful recipes. Um, we're going to take, we're going to talk more about some of the specific recipes, too, after we take a short break. So stay with us. We'll learn more about Turkish fusion cuisine. Constantinople been a long time gone. Constantinople now church delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul. The Constantinople so few the day in Constantinople she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. So take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? Whitehouse Pastures is a 146-year-old, multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meat that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. 
That's nobody's business but the Turks. We are back here on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, and this is A Taste of the Past, and we're talking Turkish cuisine with author Sheila Kaufman, author with um, Noor Ilkin of the Turkish Cookbook, Regional Recipes and Stories. And Sheila, uh, one thing that we haven't really talked about, and I'm sure in your travels you, uh, you spent plenty of time there, and that's what people think about often when they think of Istanbul, the spice markets. Oh, not only the spice market, but the Grand Bazaar. The bazaars, <laughs> right. <laughs> the Grand Bazaar was built at the end of the 1400s, and it had 43 streets, uh, excuse me, 67 main streets and 4,000 shops under one roof. Oh, my goodness. And next to it was what was called the Egyptian Spice Market, and you could find spices from the east and caviar from the Black Sea and butter from Moldova and olives and fish from Greece. Um, they're still the first stop for tourists when, when they go to Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Well, understandably so. I mean, that that's, uh, should be one of the wonders of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it is, I think, for shoppers. I never get tired of, of, of going there. All right. In, um, in the cuisine, what are the, the particular elements that, that you found when you were cooking you say there's not one identifiable dominant, dominant um, not, not identifiable, dominant uh, feature, but certainly there are particular elements that make up the dishes. Uh, you mentioned vegetables and then the meats. Uh, what meats in particular? Well, mostly lamb, beef, no pork, um, chicken. Um, that's pretty much what it is, and the... Um, Sheep and goats graze up in Anatolia in the, in the mountains, in the plateaus. But um, the, again, depending on where you live, lentils and vegetables and dried vegetables and fruits might be dominant, whereas if you're by the sea and you have access to all the, the fresh fish, then your diet is going to be a lot of the fresh fish. In, in Turkish cooking, there are no unusual ingredients. You can go in your supermarket anywhere in this country and find whatever you need to make what is mostly very easy Turkish dishes, and there's no special equipment that you need either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what about some of those spices that, um, well, that they oregano, share? Oregano, parsley, dill, thyme, wild thyme, um, the only unusual one is Aleppo pepper, which right. is like paprika with a pinch of cayenne in it. Mm-hmm. It's a, a red pepper, and they make a red pepper paste that can be very mild or very hot that goes into a lot of uh, dishes. That that's, would be the spicy thing. I had a friend once, and I invited her to come to one of my favorite Turkish restaurants for, for lunch, and she said, I don't like Turkish food. And I said, well, when did you ever eat Turkish food. She says, well, I haven't, but I know I don't like it. It's too spicy. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, it's not spicy at all. And number two, why wouldn't you try something before you made a judgment on it? <laughs> uh, you, what you mentioned before was that um, this affinity that they have that for all the f- for vegetables and fresh ingredients, that everything is very fresh. And 
interesting because it's often been referred to as the original Mediterranean diet, um, as people, you know, were so fond of of uh, talking about the Mediterranean diet years ago and still are. It is it's a lot of vegetables and fresh. Most of their food is very helpful, even even that. The, the Turks are also very economic, and I think this is where helpful also comes in. They'll take a half a pound or a pound of meat, and they'll feed 10 or 12 people with it because they'll cut it up or grind it up very small, and they'll mix it with vegetables or lentils or rice or bulgur and create a whole new dish that's quite satisfying, filling, and, and very healthful. They never put like a, a roast on the table. Mm-hmm. They don't waste anything. Um, when Nur was teaching me how to cook, uh, I was like the sous chef back then. <laughs> and one day we were making something that required the chopped dill. So she gave me the bunch of fresh dill, and I, I broke off all of those, you know, those thick stems, and I threw them in my little garbage bag. And all of a sudden she turns around, and her eyebrows go up, and she more or less screeches, What are you doing? <laughs> and I said, Nothing. She said, Get that out of the bag. So I, I reached in and I, I took the stems out of the bag, and she says, we don't waste anything. She said, that's number one. Number two, you chop the stems of either dill or parsley, and you put them in the dish. The, the leaves or the weed goes on top. <laughs> and that was a very that's interesting right. lesson. That's very, and very, very instructive, right? That has the flavor, so, the essence, right? The flavor... Exactly. The flavor is very important, and it's, it's done by just simple things like that. <laughs> Not like you have to, you know, go looking for some strange um, spice right. to use. Or- well, in, in continuing to adopt and adapt um, their cuisine, the Turkish, I notice, have also, they've incorporated in modern day many, not well, modern, but um, a lot of tomatoes and peppers, New World foods into New World, cuisine. they got these from the Arab traders back in the 15 and 1600s, because again, the Arabs ran also on the, some, you know, the Silk Road was not one road, it was about three depending on where it began and ended. Mm-hmm. And so from the Arabs, they got the tomatoes and the chilies, which have become a really integral part of Turkish cooking. Not so much the hot chilies, but like the, the green and red bell peppers, mm-hmm. the cubanelle peppers, and um, tomatoes. And you, you'll find all over the Middle East and Mediterranean, you know, tomatoes are such an important part of the cuisine and the diet. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the breads. Oh, they make wonderful breads. Um, there's there's flat ones um, similar to pita called baslama or Anatolian flat breads, and you can either bake them or just cook them six to eight minutes on a little you know griddle like you would make pancakes. Mm-hmm. They have uh, Nur makes a wonderful whole wheat bread that you just throw. You don't you know you don't have to separate. You don't have to worry about the yeast. You just throw everything into the bowl. It rises twice, and you have this fabulous uh, fresh loaf of whole wheat bread. They have, you'll see as a tourist, men going around with these big, tall dowels or sticks, and on them are these round breads with a nigella or sesame seeds on top. They're called semit. Strung like like beads on a a stick, right? Yeah, 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 you'll see them in Egypt. Again, you'll see them, you know, in, in many different countries. They might be made a little different. One might be sweeter. One might have an extra spice. But these are the typical breads. They also have hide, which is um, 
Oh, they usually shape them like boats, and they put either cheese on top or a meat filling like a pizza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I've had uh, yeah, I've had the Turkish style pizzas often, and yeah. they will be like a flatbread with, as you mm-hmm. said, just maybe a little bit of ground meat with right. lots of herbs. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and Turkey's known for its cheeses. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's a book I'm sorry I didn't buy that talked about hundreds of different cheeses. Uh, but I really wasn't into cheese when I saw the book. Now I, I am, and, uh, you know, I regret that I didn't get it. But um, you they, have to go they back use a lot trip. of what they call Turkish white cheese, which other countries would call feta cheese. Feta, right, or farmer's cheese or feta cheese, yes. right. Um, now, they were, nom- say they were nomadic uh, for so long that when to finally settle and then harvest and, uh, grains to make breads, did they always make the breads? Were the traditional breads a wheat bread? Well, they had access since biblical times to barley and some of the, the other grains. So depending on, you know, they, they came and they, they began to move uh, from west to east and they would conquer or pass through where other peoples lived, and they would pick up what those peoples had as ingredients and, as I said, recipes. Mm-hmm. So depending on where they were, as they were nomads, they, mare's milk was very important to them at that time. Um, they, they used um, to dry their meats, pasturma was very important, because they were on the go. That's how they invented yogurt. That uh-huh. was one of their gifts to the world. That's what you said. Uh, one of one of Turkey's gifts to the world is yogurt. Right? And they also uh, introduced coffee to Europe, and um, they introduced or they gave the, the Dutch the tulip. They're, Holland is not where tulips originated. They originate in Turkey. That, they also gave the world Santa Claus because Santa Claus was a saint who lived in Turkey. Huh. Little-known facts. <laughs> Did you know? The, the, the Ottomans, though, were, were fascinating to me because they didn't invade to dominate. Once they conquered you, they didn't want to bother with you. Uh, they didn't impose their culture. They did not make you learn their language, and they certainly didn't make you adopt their religion. So Christians and Jews and Muslims, they all lived very peacefully for 500 years under the Turks. Hmm, interesting. Uh, there are so many stories that you include in the um, the cookbook, it is yes a Turkish cookbook, but it is a storybook as well. You really do tell the the story, both historical and and modern day stories of of dishes. Um, and two of them I want to remember. Um, one when you were learning from Noor Noor Ilkin, your co-author, um, about Turkish cuisine, you told me. You were asking her, what were the party dishes? What were the special holiday oh, yes. or festive dishes? That was, thank you for remembering that. Um, it was so interesting to me that what she cooked for her family was always on the ambassador's table when she entertained. So when they lived in England and Greece and, and Russia and Afghanistan and I, I forget where else, it was home cooking. It, it's always been and still is home cooking that's on the table. When and, and did you find this to be true in your travels throughout um, yeah, Turkey? Yeah, in, in Turkey, there's not a lot of you know, fast food restaurants. The, the restaurants have the tradition that the chef grew up with. Now you see in the hotels, though, is where the fusion cooking comes in mm. because they want to please all the, all the tourists. Mm-hmm. But in the home, these are recipes that are being made for you know, almost a thousand years, like the Monte. 
they, it doesn't change. It, it stayed the same. Now, they do have some dishes that, for instance, uh, they make a green pilaf, a green lentil pilaf, uh, to serve at weddings or at henna parties. And they use chickpeas uh, to celebrate a circumcision. And so there are different recipes, like there is a helva that's used when somebody has passed away. But they're not special. You could eat them at any other time that you wanted to. They're just special dishes that, that are for special occasions also. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me, you have referred a couple of times to the Monte. Um, now describe that to our listeners. Um, Monte are about a really good Monte, the way the embassy people made them, are about the size of your thumbnail. So if you can picture taking a piece of dough about the size of your thumbnail flat and putting either a chickpea or a meat filling in it and bringing the four corners up together and twisting it and making thousands of those and serving it with a wonderful yogurt sauce after you boil them, that's Monte. Amazing. Now, if I was making that, my... (laughs) My piece of dough would probably be eight inches by eight. <laughs> something that would at least fit in the palm of your hand, right? <laughs> well, you know, some things you need to learn at your mother or your grandmother's knees. You, you really do. There are some techniques that you could learn, but you have to be very patient. Huh. And others, you know, you have from childhood when you'd go help your grandmother shell peas or, you know, whatever it is that you helped your grandmother do as you grew up. All right. Uh-huh. Well, there's another um, reference you make to a, a, a story, a nice story, and that is about Noah's pudding. Oh, Azur. Yes. There are a number of, of Noah's pudding is as popular now as it probably was back in the 1600s. And the stories are that when the ark finally was going to come to ground, Noah took all the leftovers and put them together and made this wonderful pudding. Other people say there's um, 40 ingredients in Noah's pudding because it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But what's interesting is there's, there's dried fruits like apricots, there's nuts, there's a wheat. Um, it's a very interesting mixture, and it's very good, and it's a dessert. Hmm. And it's something that is... Now, do you include a recipe for that in this cookbook? Yes, there's, there's recipes for that. Aha, aha. So let me kind of intrigue our listeners to... Uh, check that one out uh what i notice when in looking through the book and looking at the recipes and trying to get a handle on which ones you know seem to to the wonderful bread pudding i mean it has hardly any ingredients these are the kinds of recipes (laughs) i love you take bread you butter it on both sides you toast it quickly in the oven you take sour cherries with a little sugar and water you make a syrup when the bread comes out you pour the cherries over it you get some whipped cream if you want you eat it And that I found about so many of the recipes. They're very workable. They're very easy to make. They're not, um, you know, they don't have a list of hundreds of ingredients and many different processes. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a very approachable book, and I think as well a very approachable cuisine. And this wonderful mosaic or fusion, as you call it, with all these different cultures for so many centuries, it really is um, a treat. For both the eye and the palate, and I thank you so much for sharing your knowledge of all this cuisine with us. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's and encourage pleasure. our listeners to uh, to take a look at the Turkish Cookbook by Sheila Kaufman. And this has been a taste of the past. Thank you for listening. I'm your host Linda Palaccio here on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. 
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.